0: Well, hi again, everyone. I'm 1010 Wins Sports Director Mark Ernais. This is On the Mark, where we take a look at the stories behind the stories in the world of sports. I am absolutely thrilled, cannot tell you what a treat this is, to talk to the immortal Dwight Gooden. Dr. K is with us, the former Met, the former Yankee, the phenom back in the mid-80s. And uh, what a terrific career he had. What a terrific guy he is. Doc, first of all... Thank you for joining me. How are you today?
1: Oh, everything's well. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking to you this morning. Um, Things are going well. Healthy, feeling good. Kids are healthy. So everybody's good. The Mets are playing well. Uh, So everything is great. No complaints.
0: Yeah, definitely want to talk to you about the Mets and the Yankees, of course. But first, we have to get the business end of things out of the way. Uh, Would you tell us, please, about the work you're doing with uh, our pal Brandon Steiner? And his uh, still fairly new Athlete Direct project.
1: Yeah, it's a great thing. Uh, Brendan's been a good friend of mine since 1984, and he started his, his whole new line, um, Athletes Direct. And when we talked, you guys might be interested, I'm saying, sure, because it's a way of connecting with the fans on a different level. And what I mean by that, when you go to autograph science, you know, you get an autograph, you take a quick picture, you might say hi or hello or whatever for a quick minute. But this way, you would get to share instrument photos or different. Projects or baseballs or bats, what have you, and on the signatures, instead of just being Doc getting what have you, it's different messages on there on what that particular pitch, I mean, or ball or pitcher meant to me, or what I was doing at that time, or what I was thinking at that time. So it's more connecting with your fans this way. And I look forward to it, and I think it's a great idea.
0: And uh, anybody who wants more information, they can get it at athletedirect.com. And uh, it's a great project. Brandon Steiner's also got Mark Messier involved. and uh, a, a whole bunch of uh, other athletes uh, who have uh, signed on and are doing uh, similar to what Doc is doing. Uh, Dwight, what else are you up to these days? I know you're a father. You've got a daughter playing softball. You've got a lot, a lot going on, huh? Yes. Um, we
1: just became a great-grandfather as well. You know, uh, now I get the opportunity because when I was playing baseball, I missed a lot of my kids' school activities, missed a lot of little stuff. But now I have the grandkids come along what we call like the next generation. So, um, and plus my younger kids. So like you mentioned, my daughter's playing softball down in Maryland. <laughs> oh, it's kids the kids, yet. Yeah. So I got my daughter, she just, they lost in a championship game and now she's going into the All-Stars in softball. So I'm down there a lot. Uh, my youngest son, he'll be a junior next year. Um, unfortunately, he don't like baseball. He plays football and basketball, which is fine. And my middle son's getting ready to have a kid. So it's another kid coming along, just became a great grandfather. Huh. So it's a lot of stuff keeping me busy. I'm looking forward to Father's Day. My kids are actually taking me out to uh, dinner on a boat. So hopefully I'll make it back safe, <laughs> you know, make it back alive. But no, I think it's a great thing. And um, now I'm just spending a lot of time with my family, my ki- grandkids, watching them grow up, getting involved with their school activities, now Little League stuff, and still a Mets fan, still love the game of baseball, um, going to the game tonight. And we're getting ready to start the Dwight Gooden and Family Foundation. Looking forward to that. Um my daughter came out with it. It's a great thing about just giving back. So many people have been there for me through my ups and downs, and this is just my way of giving back. We're not eyeing one particular um, charity thing. We're just trying to help all those in need, whether it's kids, whether it's a, whatever the situation may be. If we can help with there to do that, and I think it's a great thing we're getting ready to start.
0: Well, I wish you luck with that. And the reason I'm shaking my head, which of course people can't see because we're audio only, I'm shaking my head because you're talking about being a grandfather, and so many of us remember you when you came up with the Mets in the early and mid 80s. And, you know, I specifically and, and, and you and I have talked about this in the past. And I think it's interesting that the, the Mets have the Cubs in town and you're going to go watch uh, the game tonight and tomorrow. Yes. I, I remember what I consider and and will, to my dying day, talk about your first no hitter yes. against the Cubs that Friday night, September 7th of 1984. In your rookie year, it was officially a one hitter the infield single by keith Moreland. um what do you remember about that game before we talk about your actual no hitter
1: oh man you're, you're right on with that you know i always say that was a no hitter and the thing about it was i remember that just like you said keith morland hit a slow roller down third to ray knight and if you guys out there remember keith Moreland, he wasn't one of the fastest guys in the league he probably was of the bottom fifth of the slowest guys in the league but um not to against him. He's so slow roller. Ray Knight fills the ball, but he couldn't get the ball out of the club to throw it. I mean, it definitely should have been an error or if Ray throws the ball, he's got him out by 10 feet. He gives the guy a base hit, and I think that was the only base runner that night. And, and what made it worse was a couple of days later, uh, to my memory, Red Foley was the scorekeeper, and he said, Doc, got screwed up. That definitely should have been a no-hitter. And that just made it worse because that should have been a no-hitter, no doubt about it. Um, That should have been my first one, especially at that time. But unfortunately, it was a one-hitter. And the Cubs, you know, as you mentioned, was a big robbery the whole time. They gave me my first big league loss, so that should have been a no-hitter. And the way it happened, and as you bring it up, I look back at that still today, you know, 36 years later, and you say, man, that definitely should have been – a well, 37 years later, that definitely should have been a no-hitter.
0: See, there you go, making us all feel old again, 37 years. (laughs) That's a it's it's, it's, You know, it's unbelievable where the time has gone. Um, And, and, you know, folks can't see us again because we're – audio only, but you look fantastic. You really do. Um, I wish I could say the same for myself, but that's a story for another day. So let's fast forward. Um, You know, a lot of trials and tribulations, the 86 (laughs) championship, a a great run. Um, But let's fast forward to, again, hard to believe it was 25 years ago, um, May 14th, 1996, Yankee Stadium. You're with the Yankees, obviously. And you get an actual no-hitter against the seattle mariners um i I know you've talked a lot about it over the years but uh you know looking back today what do you most remember about that night
1: oh man you're right you know i talked about it but every time i talk about it you know i get cheers because it was so special and everything that took place and went involved into that game and been 25 years as you mentioned anniversary of that um the thing that sticks out the most about that was i I still remember i started out that year 0 and three and I actually got benched. And when a pitcher gets benched, that means you're not getting in the game if you're up 10 or you're down 10. You're not getting in the game. And unfortunately, uh, my good friend David Kong got an aneurysm in his shoulder and got put on a disabled list because the team was trying to decide whether it was going to release me or send me down. When David Cone got the aneurysm, that got me back into the rotation. And I think it was my fourth start back into the rotation with the no-hitter. But the thing that made that no-hitter so special, and it just was meant to be, like, a lot of people always ask me, too, whether I'd rather have the no-hitter, like we mentioned earlier, in 84, or the one that happened in 96. i say the one that happened in 96, simply because that day, um, that pitch, I was supposed to fly home to be with my father, who was very sick. He had been on dialysis for 15 years, and his heart was failing him, and the doctors felt that he had to have surgery. If he didn't have the surgery, he probably wouldn't make it a week. And even with the surgery, they weren't sure if he'd make it a week. And I had my plane ticket to fly home. And that morning, I, you know, I called Joe Torre because I felt my dad would probably want me to pitch. Because all I can remember was all the times me and my dad spent at the park with my nephew, Gary Sheffield, as well. We just put in all these hours of work and all the talks, you know, I had with my dad, the father, the son talk. And I said, I told Joe Torre, I'm coming in tonight. I'm going to pitch. Say, no, go home. Take as much time as you need. When you're ready, you come back. I said, no, I'll see you tonight. I'm coming in to pitch. The next call was to my mom. And I told her, I said, Mom, I'm not coming home. I got a pitch. They know you have to come home. Your dad's expecting you. Everybody's expecting you. He needs your support. You have to be there. And I actually hung the phone up with my mom with something you don't do. But I was just feeling so guilty about not coming. I hung the phone up. And I remember the start of that game, like the first three innings, I was standing in a walkway between the dugout and the clubhouse, wondering if I made the right decision or not. When I see my dad again? Is he going to be okay? All these things going through my mind during the course of the game. Not to the sixth inning when I realized I had a no-hitter. And I looked at the scoreboard to see what hitters Seattle had coming up while I was going to face. And you see no runs, no hits, no errors. And your heart started beating a little faster. <laughs> you know, it's not six sixth inning. I was able to put my dad's situation aside and pitched from that point on. And the thing that was amazing was I didn't, I've, I've had games where I've had a lot better stuff, but that particular game, I just made the pitches when I had to make the pitches. And I remember the ninth inning, you know, because Seattle at that time had the best hitting team in baseball to me. And the ninth inning, we were up 2 nothing, And I walked two guys, and Mel Stottemire, the pitching coach, comes out to the mound. And he says, Doc, how are we doing? I said, it doesn't matter. I'm not coming out. Because <laughs> once you get that close, you have to go forward. And he said, OK, the game's yours. And the last pitch of the game was a hanging curveball to Paul Sorrento. I was sitting on the 10. He popped it up. We get the out. My teammates are carrying me off the field. And all I can think about was, my dad's going to be OK. Is he going to make it through this? A year before that, I was, you know, suspended from baseball. Early this year, you know, I was benched. Whether I get released, what was going to happen? And now here I am, pitching a no hitter at Yankee Stadium, where all these different um, great players have played and happened. And then I remember flying home the next day. I took a ball from the game to get to my father. He had the surgery. You know, he was on life support at the time. He never made it back home in a faster way. But the last game my father saw me pitch was a no hitter, and that what made it that much special.
0: And that photo of you being carried off the field, I think is one of the all time indelible images for not only Yankee fans, but I think even Mets fans, because you had finally gotten that no hitter. And I don't know if you remember this, but we ran into each other at a charity event in Rockland County about uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And you were nice enough to sign a couple of those photos for my two buddies uh, in my wedding party who I had made miss the game because we had tickets for the next night.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and they're oh, still ticked off at me. Here we are 25 years later. <laughs> they, they still don't let me forget that because of me, they <laughs> missed your no-hitter.
1: Oh, man, that's terrible. But I appreciate them being there in spirit. But that was incredible, man, what happened there. And you're right. A lot of Mets fans, like I was at an event last night, and a lot of Mets fans, they talk about that no-hitter. And even though Mets fans, they – cherish that moment and share that moment with me as well. And that just shows that the, the fan support I've had throughout my whole career and even now, is just unbelievable here in New York.
0: Hey, while I have you, uh, I'm curious to know, I, I think I know one answer. Uh, it seems pretty obvious, but uh, who are the guys that whatever you're doing and a game is on, you will stop to watch to make sure you don't miss what they're doing, whether it's on the mound or at bat?
1: I tell you what, um, on the, we'll start on the mound because tomorrow he's pitching. Um, Jacob Degrom is the guy, and I got to know Jacob when he had the long hair uh, when he first came up, and uh, it's funny because I say that only because when he cut his hair, I was like, oh man, what a mistake! This guy shouldn't have done that. You know, this guy's pitching good because I'm a very superstitious player, but he got better once he cut his hair, and um, he's definitely one of the guys I circle every 50 on my calendar. And um, I have that winning pitches. Um, Garrett Cole is another guy I like watching. I'll circle his day as well. And for his hitters, I would say Mike Trout and Aaron Judge are the guys that I really, really enjoy watching. And um, I'm a huge, huge baseball fan still today. Love watching the games and um, looking forward to going there tonight.
0: So, how great is it that we have DeGrom and Cole both here in town?
1: Oh, unbelievable. And my, my goal is I see that uh, they're both pitching tomorrow. So, I'm watching and hoping that they match up here the 1st of July when the Mets and the Yankees play each other, that they get to face each other. I would love that. I would definitely be right there watching.
0: Do you remember um, in your early days, certainly in your heyday, you know, that you had the breakout rookie season, you had the 25 wins uh, the year after you had the world series the year after that, talking about 84, 85 and 86. Do you remember what game days were like around Shea stadium when you pitched?
1: Oh man, I, I know, like you mentioned, 85, and I would say probably after the all-star break of 84, all the way through 86, it was incredible. Um, even like the like if it was the night game I was pitching, I had my routine where I would go to this deli, the same deli every day, like about 12 to get my lunch, get my sandwich. And these people, they're already there. They already camped outside waiting. Um, when I get to the ballpark at three o'clock for a seven o'clock start, the people already there, you know, until I get in the parking lot, the fans was packed. And it was great. It was more than to me, it was more than a game, it was an event. And I looked forward to it. I suffered the challenge. And there was no better feeling than pitching at Shea Stadium back in those days. I just loved it.
0: I think that fans of the current era really can't appreciate, especially because of the e-tickets, right? You don't, you don't have well, hard-copy tickets anymore. But the fact that people would queue up, line up around Shea Stadium to get to the ticket windows on days or nights that you pitched is, is one of the lasting memories. And certainly, you know, the things that you did on the mound were incredible. You know, the rookie strikeout record in 84, as I mentioned, the the 25 and three record with the minuscule earned run average in 85, by the way, about that minuscule earned run average, when you look back doc at your numbers for that year, and you see the numbers that Jake is putting up this year, can you even imagine that that's possible? Oh,
1: and, and, I mean, it's unbelievable. The numbers that he's putting up in, Every game this guy goes out there, it's like if he gives up one or two runs, you think something's wrong. Is he hurt or what's going on? And now I can – I can um, like when fans tell me like certain things that, that the pleasure they got of watching me, those days the numbers I put up, I couldn't really relate. But now I can relate a little bit because I'm a fan of Jake and watching him do what he does. And it's just amazing how everything stops and watches this guy pitch. And every day he goes out there and putting up these numbers and – I'm not sure if he really understands the numbers he's putting up. I know he knows he's doing something special. And I only say because when you're going through something like that, you're just going out to do your job, and it's fun, and you're just competing. But when it's all said and done, or you're not putting up the same numbers anymore, as close to that, then you realize that how, how magic that was in what he was doing. Because what he's doing is special, and hopefully he stays healthy and just continues to streak. He- it's definitely fun to watch.
0: So we're talking about 25 years ago was your no-hitter. How hard is it for you to believe that it's 35 years since the World Series?
1: Oh, man, unbelievable. And it's amazing because the Mets had a good team after that, and you thought definitely with the organization they will be been one more. But it just goes to show you how hard that is to do. And even when we won in 86, we thought we were going to do this for a couple of years. Um, it's just hard to do because you can have a great team, but once you get in the playoffs, it's the hottest team that wins. So I think with the Mets right now, what the way they're playing, if they can stay, you know, keep it together so the guys get back, the, the main guys, and with the DeGrom and hopefully get a couple pitches by like Syndergaard, Carrasco, if they get in the playoff and the way the DeGrom's pitching, anything is possible. So this could be it. This could be the year.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, considering all of the major injuries that they've had. And Noah Syndergaard, of course, still recovering from Tommy John. He's not expected back until after the All-Star break. The fact that they're in first place, and as we sit here on this Tuesday morning, four games in front of second-place Phillies, how surprising is that, that they've been able to do so well?
1: Well, I am surprised, and I think it says a lot about these guys stepping up um, for Sandy Olsen and his staff making the right moves for bringing these guys in from different organizations, the in spots, um, the players that was on the bench earlier filling in doing a good job, and I am surprised because – Normally, when you have that many injuries, especially with the starting, you have two of your starting pitches out, normally these things don't happen. And I still think it's close enough where one move in this division, whether it's the Phillies, Braves, or the Mets making a move, that one player you bring in could make a big difference in a race because it's going to be a tight race to the end, I believe, with those three teams. But well, hopefully the Mets stay right where they are, get the big guys back, and pull out. But you got to have pitching. And I think what Stroman's doing and what uh, Taiwan Walker is doing has been unbelievable.
0: Doc, on the other side of that coin, we've got the Yankees who are really struggling. I mean, as far as the Yankees are concerned, uh, only one game over 500. they They've lost 13 out of 18, take a three-game losing streak up to Buffalo to play the Blue Jays tonight. How, how surprised are you that the Yankees are are in the situation that they're in, sitting about eight games out of first?
1: Yeah, you're right. And um, you look at their roster, and it's hard to believe that they're in the situation they're in. But I still believe in an organization that they could pull through, even though they're eight or nine games out. But it's tough because I know when they got within, like, two or three games, I thought they were ready to do it after they took two out of three from Tampa, you know, earlier. And then now they fall back to this place. But, like they say, it's still early. But these games count just as much as they do in September. And they got to get the pitching by healthy. And it goes to show you, you got to have pitching. And the hitters, you know, they got the names, but guys got to stay healthy, man. But I'm definitely shocked. Definitely shocked the way it's been going to show with the Yankees. I still believe they can still fight their way out of it and at least get a wild card or get something, just get in, just get in it. And you got a shot, but we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah. The good news. I think, you know, they still have about 95 games left and they're only last I checked three games out of a wild card spot. Hey, I have to ask you all this talk about a supposed crackdown by MLB to have pitchers stop using sticky stuff on the ball. What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I think um, a lot's been made out of it a lot of times things get blown out of proportion. And what I mean by that is, I remember a couple of years ago when these guys were hitting all these home runs and home runs on a record pace, they talked about the ball's being juiced and changing the balls or maybe the wood and the bat's different. And now the pitchers are, you know, got the upper hand in domain. First they talked about moving the mound back. Now they're talking about the sticky stuff. I mean, it's a beautiful game. Let the game be played on the field. Um, I understand if the guys are using illegal stuff, you know, but that stuff been going on for years. I mean, if it's something... Pretty obvious, change it. But I just think it's making too big of a deal out of this stuff, what's going on. And, you know, batters, they use pine tar for better grips. So pitchers, you know, they've been using stuff here and there. I understand if it's something that's really out of hand, you you got to change it. But I just think they're making too much out of nothing, me me personally.
0: Listen, I don't fancy myself anywhere near Woodward and Bernstein, but I think I would be totally irresponsible, uh, especially given Garrett Cole's comments the other day about – things that are handed down from generation to generation, you being of a certain generation, what did you use, if anything, on the mound to help you get a better grip?
1: All I would use is sweat. To be honest, I do a lot of sweat. You look back in my, my videos where I sweat a lot. And a lot of times, like especially like, say, April or September, when it's still cool out, I was getting a sweat and rub the ball up a little bit. And I was one of those guys with superstitions where some ballparks, they have the balls rubbed up a little darker than others. I didn't want to use the balls that was right out of the bag. It was real white. I just thought the hitter had the advantage. So I grabbed it a little dirt and rub it up a little bit to get a better grip. But that was all I used, and I didn't know how to use anything else. And the funny thing about it, whether Mike Scott was cheating or not, I just know that a lot of times when I pitched against Mike Scott, the ball was scuffed on the same spot all the time. And I would try to use the ball, but I couldn't do it, get it to do anything. So even if I wanted to cheat, I couldn't. didn't know how to cheat. So, uh, you know, some guys do it. Some guys get away with it. Some guys don't. But, you know. I think it takes away the beauty of the game, myself personally. And you're right. When when uh, Gary Cole said stuff being passed down, I don't think that was the right answer to give. But uh, <laughs> you know, this guy's good enough. I don't
0: think he needs to cheat. Hey, I'm curious to know when's the first time you ever heard of the term spin rate?
1: Probably two years ago, <laughs> to be honest with you. And when I heard of it, I think I was down at the Mets Fantasy Camp, and we're talking about the prospects that got coming up, and it says one guy throws 9.5 but they want to get his spin rate on his curveball up more before they decide to move him up. And that's not like spin rate. Okay, I think numbers, like a lot of stuff gets, with analytics and all this stuff gets blown out of proportion. I guess it does matter, but it shouldn't be the determined factor. I think the determining factor should be what you see, how this guy's pitching, his numbers, the stats. That should be the determined factor instead of just punching numbers. I think analytics is good, but let's not get carried away with it.
0: Well, for the record, I don't remember a starting pitcher having a better curveball than you. And, you know, Mets fans, again, of a certain age, definitely remember that the nickname for the curveball was Uncle Charlie, but yours was so good, Tim McCarver used to call it Lord Charles.
1: Yes, <laughs> that's so, true. <laughs> how did
0: you throw it so well? Oh, uh, My dad taught me at a very young age.
1: <clears throat> and it's funny because... You know, when you're young, you're taught not to throw curveballs to your 15, 16, what have you. My dad thought that it's how you throw opposed to what you throw. And that was his philosophy. And so I started learning a curveball when I was like 10 years old. And the main thing was try to throw it out of the same arm slot, arm slot as your fastball. I think a lot of guys, they're getting hurt or having this Tom John surgery is because they're getting on the side of it where it's doing more strain on his um, elbow. It's not no more than 12 to 6. And what I mean by 12 to 6 for a lot of guys it's getting more of a top thrown out of the same onslaught as your basketball. Did
0: you ever give any thought to getting into coaching or managing?
1: I would, I would love to get back in eventually. Um, right now uh, my focus is just, uh, I still have uh, my youngest son is a junior in high school, even though he's playing football and basketball, he's getting recruited by a lot of schools. so I'm trying to spend more time with him. I like to get back into baseball at some point. That's my passion. That's all I've known my whole life. And hopefully in the near future, I can get back in somewhere. Um, Preferably with a New York team, but, you know, we'll see what happens.
0: Well, if we can start lobbying uh, either Sandy or Cash or somebody, uh, let the guy work. He, you know, I I can't think of a better baseball mind and, and certainly, uh, you know, it would be great to have you uh, around on a regular basis. I have to ask doc, as we're starting to wrap up here, how do you, I know you're a fan of the sport, but how do you feel about the direction that baseball's headed in generally?
1: I get a little nervous, and what I mean by that is a lot of things changing. Like, say for I'll start with the pitchers. You know, a hundred pitches, they're taking guys out. They don't want pitchers to face lineup three times around. So that stuff worries me a little bit. And then they get caught up too much on velocity. Um, if we got those, you know, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, let's sign them. If you guys throwing eighty-five, eighty-six, um, let's stay away. Um, I think it should be more. If a guy knows how to pitch, change speeds, read bat speed, locate the ball. Those are guys I really want because you can throw a 97, 98, but if you can't locate or your mechanics are off, you're going to get hurt or you're going to get hit. So uh, that get away from it. And then now with the rules with, you know, starting a guy on second base, you know, an extra innings, uh, seven inning double hitters. I think we're making too much too fast with this stuff. And not are thinking about bringing in these robotic umpires where you had an umpire, but the science call, you know, all this different stuff is taken away. I like the human element of it. I mean, because, If it's a close play, whether it's first base or or, a pitch, you know, and a call from home, we get to see the replay. The umpires, they got a split second to make those decisions. And being a former pitcher, when I was pitching, whether the umpire strike zone was small or big, you make the adjustment to what he's calling opposed to saying, oh, by the blue books, that was a strike. Or I looked at the replay, it was in the box. And that's the beauty of the game. That's the fun of the game. And that's being taken away. I'm just afraid that, you know, 10 years from now, what direction this game's going to be in just because of where it's going now. It's just been way too many changes made too soon. That's just my opinion.
0: Yeah. I don't think we'll ever see this ghost runner in the postseason. but could you envision, I mean, I, I look back at a horror, so I can't even imagine what you and the rest of the 86 Mets would say about this, but can you imagine that that game six against the Astros in the national league championship series wasn't, allowed to go 16 innings?
1: Oh, man, that was one of the games. And you're right, that's a good point. That game, to me, goes down as one of the best games in baseball, especially in the postseason. I mean, it's taken away because of what happened in game six in the World Series. But game six against Houston, 16 innings, that's what it's all about. And you're right, if they had a man on second base, that game don't go 16 innings. A lot of things happen, but that's what it's about. That's what the fans want. That's what the players like. Let's get the game to be played on the field. but all these rude changes, it's just been way, way too much and blown out of proportion.
0: So many fun games I'm thinking about just as we talk. You're, you're, uh, again, the phantom no-hitter against the Cubbies in 84, the July 4th game in Atlanta in 85, oh, yeah. the clincher yeah. that you pitched against the Cubs, if memory serves, the division clincher yeah. uh, in 1986. And obviously, um, you know, the, the Mets winning the World Series – later that year, and you're no-hitter with the Yankees and, and World Series and everything else. Um, Doc, is there any one game that sticks in your mind to this day, if not the no-hitter?
1: Oh, man, you're right. I mean, so many games, and there's so many different games that sticks out more than others that you never, ever forget. out. I guess at the top of my head, the best game would probably be, from a personal standpoint, would probably be the no-hitter because everything that was going on with my dad, from a team standpoint, I would say probably – being able to clinch against the Cubs at home and all the fans run out on the field at Shea Stadium was great. Um, then I got I to gotta throw in the downside with the good. So the bad would be probably getting off the home run of Mike Sosia, one pitch in 1988 in the playoffs. If I could have that one pitch back or at least think for one second. When I replay that tape in my head now, I think that, you know, obviously Sosia, the um, veteran player at the time, you know, it's my third season. I woke Shelby on four pitches. Sosia's probably thinking, He's probably going to try to get ahead. I'm going to cheat him. I'm going to try to hit the home run. I threw the pitch right where he can do it. But I threw that pitch 10 more times. He probably ground to second base. It's almost like when they say the game of inches, Paul Sorrento, who's a home run hitter, we're playing at Yankee Stadium. I throw him a hanging curveball. He pops it up for the no hitter. Socia, who's not a home run hitter, I think he had four home runs that year, throw a fastball, hits out of the park to tie the game up. So it's just a matter of thing. So that's one pitch I like to have back. I can never get that out of my head no matter what. And on the good side, would definitely be the no hitter and clinching at home with the, uh, sharing with the Mets fans against the Cubs.
0: I hate to put you on the spot, but I have to. Who was your favorite teammate?
1: My favorite teammate was Darryl Strawberry. Yes.
0: Well, you guys came up together, and, and uh, yeah, yeah, we a lot came of up time together. even in the minor leagues, right? Coming up to the Mets. Yeah,
1: he, he was always a year ahead of me in the minors. Um, he won Rookie Year '83, and I came in in '84. Um, we connected right away. We should ride to the ballpark together out on the road. Obviously, later in our career, once we retired, we had our ups and downs You know, where we wanted to kill each other. But, um, you know, that happens. Sometimes you like that with your brother. But at the end of the day, I know he loves me. I love him. It was great today. So that's all that matters.
0: I'm glad you guys are in a good place. I know he's doing well. I'm glad you're doing well. You look, as I said, terrific. Uh, happy Father's Day. I know you're going to have a, a terrific one and enjoy the games the next couple of nights uh, out at City Field.
1: I uh, appreciate it. Thank you. And I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to seeing you or talking to you again real soon, buddy.
0: I am Mark Rene. That is the immortal Dwight Gooden. And you're on the mark.